From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast, Friday edition. So, uh, you know, we're going to get right into it today because I think we have a really fun topic that is another one that was brought to our attention via a listener. This from Tom, who emailed me uh, and basically said he's been a listener for a really long time, which we appreciate. Thank you for to all of you who are loyal, longtime listeners and said... He's gotten a lot of information from the pod, but was really curious about one specific thing, and that is that he is, at his core, a uh, craft beer drinker, but he's gotten very uh, tired of the really crazy labels and names, like, for example, Unicorn Farts, uh, (laughs) which was in his email, which I really appreciated, uh, very funny, that are now all over beer, right? And so his question basically was, do we think that... The continued extremism, I guess you would say, of beer labeling, names, etc., where basically there isn't many details anymore on what is actually, what actually the beer is or what it will taste like is going to ultimately hurt the category as people maybe either turn away from those kinds of beers and towards the macro loggers they know or away from those beers to other things like seltzers, et cetera. And one of the sort of anecdotes he gives is that he was in his local craft beer store recently and he was looking at this huge cooler filled with these beers and another guy walked over the cooler, looked at them and goes, oh, I'm not going to get any of this crap. I don't even know what it is. And walked over and got, I think it was PBR. Blue Moon. No, Blue Moon. Blue Moon. It was like, mm-hmm. at least at least I know what's in this. And mm-hmm. then grabbed it and left. Uh and I have to say that, like, I hadn't thought about this prior to uh, Tom emailing in, which is why you all should email in your questions, because <laughs> yeah. sometimes, like this time, they are really good uh, and ha- are great, you know, th- topics for us to discuss that we might not have thought of ourselves, even in our editorial meetings, et cetera. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, good point, Tom. I think that's a very valid thing to be concerned about, because the more I think about it as well... I do see that beer has gone from this product that was trying to just craft beer, this product that was just trying to differentiate itself from macro beer by having a little bit more design than macro lager did to really being a product that, you know, you made and then had your like high school friend who thought they were a graphic designer on the side design the label for. And you made the most insane name possible for the beer and you didn't really seem to care what people knew about that beer, right? Like sort of like if you're in the know and you're a drinker of the, at this brewery, then you're willing to trust us for all the beers we make and we don't need to tell you, which I could see is not a problem if you're a taproom attendee. But if you're a patron, not of the taproom, but of the local store and you don't have that information, then I think Tom has a pretty valid point here. Like, who is buying these beers and is it ultimately hurting craft beer? I think you could say at some, yes. I mean, we have the same problem now that like lots of wines do where people don't understand the grape names, the regions, et cetera. So they, they buy something that's familiar. What do you guys think? Yeah. I mean, I think that last thing that you just said is a really big part of it, right? Like there are so many beers out there now. There's so many craft breweries and they have so many beers from each of them and the market for, especially the more popular styles is so super saturated that I feel like at this point you need something like a zany name or a really outrageous label to set yourself apart. And I think that for a lot of people, 
probably ones who are less familiar with different styles and maybe just know like IPA, know they like an IPA, that when they're going to the grocery store or wherever they get their craft beer, they are picking these things by the label. Okay, I want to ask you guys a question, first of all, to Tom's email. Did either of you look up what this beer is? The unicorn farts? Unicorn, unicorn farts? farts? I did not. Okay. What <laughs> I kind, didn't either. What kind what, of what beer it? do you think it is? Each of you guess. I think it's like a milkshake triple IPA. Okay. I Joanna? I think it's a hazy IPA. Oh, both Something wrong. Something fruity. I will read you the description because I think it's hilarious. Please. The <laughs> Sour Me Unicorn Farts is a glittered sour ale. Glittered sour ale, apparently a category now. Brewed with cherries, <laughs> tangerines, and limes. Fruity cereal is added into the mash, and it's finished off with a sprinkle of natural, mm. mineral-based edible glitter. Stop. I guess if you ask me, yeah, no, I, this is this is straight <laughs> from the Duclaw Brewery <laughs> website, I promise you. Um, no idea if that's any good. I'm kind of guessing that the combination of edible glitter and fruity cereal means I'm not really the target audience for this beer, but maybe I am. <laughs> Duclaw, if you want us to try it on air, send send us some cans. We will try it. I promise you. If it even still exists anymore. Yes, that's true. But um, the point here is, first of all, like fantastic uh, point here by Tom. Even though some of this information is on the can, again, who knows what the fuck any of this tastes like. And and that is part of the problem, I think, with this and and the, the kind of zany artwork and naming conventions definitely help feed into this confusion of, what is in the beer. I also think that we're just, it's the stage of craft beer we're in, right? Where if the yeah. early stages, as as you were talking about, Adam, were about differentiation from macro lager and about saying, hey, look, there's this whole world of beer styles that goes beyond, beyond the lager, beyond the light lager. We can make these beers, we can enjoy these beers, and we probably, as the brewery, don't have to do a lot more on the sort of marketing side than just be different. And then you had another wave that mm-hmm. was like, okay, well, we're going to maybe amp up, you know, we're going to, we're going to really focus in on IPAs. We're going to amp up the amount of hops, maybe amp up the amount of alcohol. It's going to be kind of this even more intense thing. And that's where you start to see some of this can art and naming sort of gimmickry creep in. I mean, I think unfortunately, as uh, we've noted before and has been noted on the site before, you know, this is where I think you start to see a lot of the like kind of more appropriative and or like kind of gross sexist kind of marketing oh yeah yeah, in this in this in that realm in particular and now it's i think on the one hand like more whimsical and or more kind of (laughs) less harmful in in the design but as we've entered this well world of the kinds of beer styles that you both described in trying to guess what unicorn farts was we have entered this space where beer is so it ha- there's so much going on, so much literally going into the beers, like perhaps edible glitter and cereal and stuff like that, that it's a little bit hard. I don't even know what, what would a conventional label for this beer look like? Like, what could you possibly call a beer like this that wasn't something goofy and gimmickry? I mean, I, I don't know that you the, – the, the kind of – it's almost to me like the art now is being – determined by the style of beer being made it's no longer a let's put a crazy label on our you know brown ale it's like we made a beer with five million different ingredients that are super strange we have to give it a an unconventional label because otherwise people are going to have the wrong idea about it going in if if the beer can looks too conventional yeah and i think that like this goes back to there is there's a thing about being creative and there's a desire for people to want the new new and the like 
the coolest shit. But at the end of the day, like if you look at actual market trends, the only thing that people are actually chasing right now is either high alcohol right. and juicy mm-hmm. and sweet or they're kind of chasing like nostalgia, right? And like the old school craft beers that they really used to like. Um, I think Dave Infante had a good point about that in Hop Take uh, today yeah. on the site where he sort of looked at New Belgium and where things are growing. And if you look at sort of, you know, they're they're trying to fix sort of fat tire, but they're also then releasing all this new Voodoo Ranger, you know, lines that all fruit are force. very fruit forward, taste like fruit punch and like are high alcohol. But at the end of the day, a lot of these weird geeky beers just like they don't appeal to the average drinker and they are, they're kind of too much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the cult of craft beer has sort of gotten out of control. Lost its way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. They like us because like there was a time like 10 years ago, I would say when craft beer was at its height where like the biggest brewers names were known and among craft beer aficionados. And then those brewers like had cult followings and kind of anything they brewed was like just bought up in droves because everyone was like, this person is so creative, yada, yada, yada. Now what happened? I mean, the thing we've talked about in a lot of these uh, conversations about the sort of what happens when you make people celebrities that shouldn't be, a lot of them turn out to be bad actors, Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of sexual harassment and other foul play that happened in this industry is, you know, alcohol plus people who can't control things is not a great mix. Um, and so there, I think there was a turn against Brewer as celebrity in a lot of places. Uh, I think also Brewer as a celebrity 10 years and prior was all built on like the brewer being the ultimate bro. Yeah. Like the beer bro was a big thing in craft beer. I mean, like I will never forget a very famous brewer who owns a very, very famous beer brand that happens to be brewed on the East Coast that may or may not make a lot of IPAs say to myself and my co-founder Josh at one point that like one of his IPAs was a, ses- his, was a session IPA if you are not a quote unquote what you might call the name of a cat. Um, when his, when, when his IP, yeah, when his IPA was, sorry. What are you saying? That was, that was a lot, that was a you, lot of you know, caveats there or whatever. Uh, yeah. Obfuscation. I think, I think he, we get he, he, made, saying, he made one of like these, these bigger, these bigger double IPAs. And that was the lowest when we asked him if he would ever make session IPAs. And he okay. said, no, I, that's my session IPA. If you're not a, got it, whatever got it, you want to say. Okay. Uh, and it was, and you know, I remember Josh and I leaving that meeting being like, wow, that guy was such a bro. And that was the sort of ethos of craft beer in general. And I think that this is just taking it to a thousand while the majority of people have stopped caring about the bro culture. Like the bro culture has become very icky in a lot of worlds and or the bro culture actually hasn't become icky. Sorry, that's not true. The bro culture still exists. It just moves on to seltzer, Mm. right? Like basically, you know, all of the stuff happening at, in in bro culture at this point in time is basically being defined by barstool sports and that's all in the world of seltzer high noon you know white claw etc and they kind of all the bros kind of left craft beer and the people left in craft beer are aficionados who really like beer and they kind of don't like this it's just kind of a turnoff and i think that's why you're continuing to see the market share shrink because people are kind of like uh, I don't know if I need a beer named Unicorn Farts. Yeah. Yeah. We have another great piece on the site from Dave and Fonday about like 
craft beer has grown up, someone told the asshats. Yep. Um, I think that's kind of what you're talking about here. But what I wanted to say also about this is that I find this trend to be kind of a shame because what happens is that you miss good beer yeah. and the people who are making good stuff. And I think that if you, you know, miss, if you don't like this trend, then you, um, you know, you miss out on some of the better beers, but then also if you're a beer maker and you don't want to participate in this trend, then you're kind of accessing a different or smaller audience as a result as well. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder too, if there's a, an issue here where not only are you potentially stuck as a, as a brewer or as a brewery trying to figure out, okay, well, do we want to play this, you know, kind of fancy can art game because it's a thing that, that, catches eyeballs whether that's in short in mm-hmm. I mean, whether that's in stores or on instagram or wherever or are we worried about alienating another audience that looks at stuff like this like our listener tom and says like well i i don't want this like this is not i don't I need this, the can yeah. i'm holding to be to make an artistic statement and i think that that's a that that is a difficult path to walk if you're a brewery i think it's hard to know and i think it's why you see some breweries do both right you see breweries who their some of their core beers are going to be more conventionally packaged and labeled and named and then they might do a one off that's a kind of more give you know more gimmicky either in terms of style or just naming and and branding and stuff like that and it allows them to perhaps you know triangulate somehow there I think the fascinating thing to me here also is so much of this, I think, over the last few years has really been driven, and we've talked about this on the pod before, but it bears mentioning again, by the shift of a lot of craft beer out of tap, out of draft, and into cans. And that's been driven by a lot Mm -hmm. of factors, right? It's been driven by COVID and some of the realities of where beer is being sold these days and certainly was being sold. And some of it is being driven by this kind of you, well, you could, depending on your opinion, a vicious or virtuous cycle of the kinds of beers that get attention are the ones that are in 16 ounce cans with, you know, sort of eye catching design and names. And that stuff doesn't convey well in a pint glass. It doesn't convey well even on a tap handle. I mean, I remember, it's funny seeing about this uh, when we got this email that that there was a period when the the real kind of zany creativity in beer was being focused on tap handles like i remember you know getting Hmm. our bars like getting a lot of really interesting ornate kind of difficult sometimes to use tap handles because at that point craft brewers were thinking and breweries were thinking how do we catch consumers eyes and for so many people the craft beer bar was the outlet and that meant draft and that meant you needed a tap handle that someone was going to look at and be like oh what is that beer right it's got like something really interesting going on it's not just your your sort of standard vertical handle that you you know see everywhere and i think a lot of that you know has shifted like i said to cans and to packaging more generally and it makes sense right that's where the growth had been or where the sales had been for the last few years and it creates a a kind of feedback loop where and again the ways that people are sharing their beer whether it's um you know on untapped or whether it's on on just social media more broadly it's a lot easier to send a share a picture of a can than it is to like i said you know share a picture of a tap handle or just a beer in a glass and so some of this i think won't it's going to be hard to put this back in the bottle such as it were right like there's a lot of forces hmm. behind this people are obviously seeing success doing this even if other people are being turned off by it. I just wonder if 
we're going to see, I think we are already starting to see this, but I wonder if we're going to see more of, uh, of this kind of approach creep into things like we've talked about, like seltzer, right? Like, why are we not seeing more, or maybe we are, and I'm just not as aware of it, more really like kind of artistic seltzer cans. I don't know. I'm trying to think of some as you say this. Because you think about like White Claw and Truly and stuff, and they're like very streamlined, right? They don't have a lot going on on the can. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole thing is that like the design influence of seltzer is kind of of the moment of very clean. Again, like a lot of seltzer cans go back to this like premium mediocre looking design, right? It's like sort of very clean, simplistic uh, same kind of fonts that are easy to read. Like, I mean, look, let's be clear. Like most of the craft beer cans look like the people just got done from like listening to a widespread panic or fish concert. And then they like mm-hmm. went and were like still tripping on acid and decided to like draw, you know, some sort of image on the can. Like, and that's kind of part of what craft beer has always been, but like, that's very different than I think the audience that they're trying to reach. I mean, the only and it's interesting because I've now seen a few prominent craft beer brands like in New York who are redesigned to this much cleaner look. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the flagship of Other Half Green City is now very clean. It's a very cleanly designed can that looks more like seltzer, where it's like a skyline that's green and it says Green City IPA Other Half, mm-hmm. right? Because I think there is something about that. You understand, like, consumers just respond to that better. And so, or I think of Maine Beer Co. Yeah, Maine like, Beer Co. is never very clean. From that. Yeah. Very clean. And again, I think that's why people also respond well to it. It feels higher end. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something about that too, like this sort of crazy design aesthetic of craft beer doesn't always then go hand in hand with being premium. So not to completely change our subject here or pick on another uh, area of drinks, but I do think that this sort of scattershot, very avant-garde design in craft beer that now we've seen sort of looks less premium than it used to to a consumer is the same problem that we see natural wine facing, where, you know, in the early days, there was this like movement amongst natural wine producers and, and just the wine community in general be like, we want something that's just as cool as what's happening in craft beer. Like, we want that community. And there were people in wine that kind of pushed for that and they discovered natural wine. And natural wine borrowed a lot of its design ideas from craft beer. Mm-hmm. And the labels were really crazy, super artistic, doodles, all that kind of stuff. And I don't think that – and in the beginning, it felt like, yeah, this is accessible wine. But now those wines are getting higher and higher and higher in price. And consumers, I think, are saying, well, why? Right? Again, like the design – the label doesn't match what I think of as to be premium. And that's always been something in society that people don't fully understand. But we, we do associate certain design aesthetics with premium, certain design aesthetics with mid-level, certain design aesthetics with cheap. Mm-hmm. Right? And – Clean, very sparse design has always been associated with high end, right? If you look at the top fashion labels, black and white. Minimalism. Minimalism has always been considered high end. And, you know, this is not minimalist at all. And I think the beer prices are getting more expensive and it's not minimalist. And so people are like, why? 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 Yep. Why? Well, and I think there's also, to come back to Tom's point on this, I think it also applies to natural wine in this example. There also becomes this question of whether intentionally or not, is the design obfuscating what the beverage is, right? Is it 
are you trying to sell people the packaging and you're very clearly not communicating to them what is inside it? And especially if you do that, plus people have bad experiences with beer or wine that they just don't like, they're going to turn away from that, right? They're going to turn back to a more uh, conventional, a more recognizable, a more comprehensible design that may also convey higher quality, but it, it also conveys the information that people generally want yep. from a label, right? I mean, in the end, as we discussed, you want to pick up the can or bottle or whatever and have a decent idea what is going to be inside the beverage that you are paying for. And if you don't know that from looking at the label, some people might still be willing to take a chance because they like the design. But I think that there are a lot of people who have been burned by that, whether, you know, just because of, you know, poor luck or what, it doesn't really matter if you've picked up a bottle of natural wine or a can of beer. And because you're like, oh, this is a cool design. I love this. And you drink it, and you're like, mm, I don't know. And that thing, especially as you're saying, Adam, has become more and more expensive. expensive yeah. yeah, It becomes harder and harder to get excited about doing that in the future. Yeah, I won't do that again, right? <laughs> right. Not and then it's the blue moon anecdote. At least right. you know what you're yeah, getting. Exactly. At least you know what you're getting. Well, n- speaking of at least you know what you're getting, so we're going to try yeah. something on the pod today uh, because we have not tried something in a while. Uh, so Sierra Nevada reached out to us and asked us if we would try their juicy little thing IPA. So their new hazy IPA. It's only available until April, I believe. Which is weird because hazy little thing is a hazy IPA. So this is just a little bit boozy or juicy. It's a, lim- it's a limited release, right? Yeah. So we'll see. But look, I've been impressed by hazy little things. So also speaking of, if you make things and want us to try them, <laughs> send them. You know yeah. how to reach out to. Reach out to Zach. He'll coordinate it all. Made with <laughs> edible glitter or not. We don't care. Yeah, I would try the unicorn farts. Yeah. <laughs> I think, to be all fair, right. I think the unicorn farts is just like, it's not, it doesn't seem to be all of what Duclaw does. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's just smells one of the beers. But, you know, ooh, this is noticeably. Smells very hoppy. Yeah, but I would say it has more of the, like, on the nose, it has more overt, like, orange juice. Oh, I agree with than, you. Than, uh, Hazel Little Thing does. Yeah. A little fruitier, juicier. Malty. Yeah, decidedly. Decidedly juicier than Hazy Little Thing. <laughs> well, it is Juicy Little Thing. Ooh, juicy. <laughs> it's appropriately named. It lives up. I mean, I will tell you, again, this is another one that, like, we know why the hazy craze started, right? It's because people, and Dave's written about this before too, like in order to expand the craft beer category, they realized that they needed to create beers that were not these aggressively bitter mm-hmm. sort of, and even like, you know, really good pilsers are aggressively bitter, right? Like they needed to move away from this bitter flavor profile and towards this fruity, juicy flavor profile and hazy's did that and this just i think takes a little bit of a step further this is like kind of easy drinking oj and yeah but without being like fruit punch right but without being fruit punch although you know (laughs) their competitor has that if you need it but i think look again this uh, this goes back to so larger conversation we should have it another another time but like I don't think you can fight the American palate. Like people keep trying to make the American palate be what they want it to be. And it's just not going to happen. The American palate is a palate that likes rich, sweet, full. It is the palate. It's like, Hmm. it's saying, for example, and it's so funny because when I talk to um, drinks producers, they always understand it the other way, 
right? So, for example, I was talking to um, some producers of tequila, and they were saying, like, while they see tequila growing in, in Europe, they never think it will grow to the level it's grown here because of the flavor profiles, like the kind of cocktails you like of the sweeter margaritas, et cetera. But then they don't understand why gin won't grow here. Mm. And it's like, well, because gin is a much more herbal, botanical, you know, bitter, yeah. botanical type liquid that we don't like in the U.S. as much. And I think like, that's why we like vodka instead, right? It's mm. sort of this base layer. You can kind of make whatever you why want we like on top bourbon of it. Instead. Exactly. <laughs> why we like bourbon instead of, you know, scotch whiskey in a lot of cases. Like I just yeah. – the flavors are different. The kinds of foods you eat are different. Like we eat cheeseburgers a lot in this country. You know, it just is what it is. Mm-hmm. And we sweeten our tomato sauces. Like we just do. And I think the companies that are figuring that out continue to have – to win again that doesn't mean that if you are a craft producer or you know high-end winemakers like you can't success here it just means you're going to speak to a smaller population and there's a different way to talk to them and you know i think the beauty of what we do here is we talk to both of those sets of groups mm-hmm. and we have the aficionados who really like who we talk to and who we understand and who understand you know our reviews and, and the ways that we write about those wines and spirits. And then we have the mass market who just like really likes beer, but likes a beer like this or likes a seltzer that tastes like strawberries. And it is what it is. And I think for that group, this beer is very effective. Yeah. Yeah. I would be curious to see if it becomes a more permanent part of the little thing line or if it remains just a limited time offering. I'm sure it's a trial run. Yeah, imagine, but quite juicy. So uh, (laughs) anyways, have a great weekend, everybody. And we will see you back here on Monday. As always, thanks for listening. And if you uh, have any thoughts, hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com or, you know, any other way you, you you know, if you want to send a pigeon, uh, we're we're on a 28th (laughs) and uh, Fifth Avenue. Just have it land on the roof where we are. Uh, And uh, Skywriter. Yeah, whatever you need to get in touch with us. Uh, And, you know, please leave a review uh, on wherever you listen to the podcast. Always as people. See the show. All right. See you guys Monday. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, However you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.